Well, good morning again. Let's pray before we get started here. Father, I just lift this time to you. Lord, I just pray you would come in and uh, that uh, you would occupy the words that I speak. I would pray that they would be your words and not mine, that all that is said uh, up here today uh, is, is nothing but truth. So we lift this time and uh, these words up to you and uh, offer this prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, since it's been two weeks since we met and kind of started this uh, series, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of kind of what we talked about two weeks ago. And if you'll remember, we talked about the story of Thomas. And Thomas is the guy who believes that he has set the Guinness Book of World Records for the number of times of asking Jesus into his heart, right? That was the whole premise, was that he just really struggled with any kind of assurance as to whether or not he was really saved. And so <clears throat> as he went through his life, he was constantly doing this thing where, you know, he would, he would ask Jesus into his heart, he'd feel okay for a while, and then... He, something would happen, and he would question whether or not he'd been sincere enough or sorry enough or something enough, and then he would go through the whole thing again. And he mentioned how he thought he had been baptized in every, every denomination at one point or another, you know, because of this constant need to try to, to make sure he was really saved. And then we contrasted that with the story of Clint. And Clint was the guy who, at a very early age, decided that he was going to uh, ask Jesus into his heart. However, Clint kind of goes along through his life, gets to a point where he discovers young ladies, decides that's a better way to go, <laughs> and decides that God's not really that real. And so he sort of puts that on the side, pursues, you know, very much of a carnal lifestyle, becomes an atheist, effectively. <clears throat> However, he kind of feels like he's got the best of all worlds, because at one time in his life, very early on, <coughs> he had asked Jesus into his heart. And so, because his church taught a once-saved, always-saved philosophy, <clears throat> he figured he was good to go no matter what happened. So he could pursue his lifestyle <clears throat> with no consequences because he believed he was going to heaven. And so we questioned whether or not <coughs> that was really valid. Okay? So what I want to do today so the whole point of that message was really this idea of, of, of assurance. You know, when, how can we have the assurance to know once and for all that we are saved? So <clears throat> I wanted to sort of pick up and continue a little bit with some of the rest of Thomas's story. So here we go, and these are his words. He says, my first year of college was the worst year of my life, despite the fact that I had lots of friends, was in a good school, enjoyed good grades, and looked forward to a reasonably bright future. 
The question of whether or not I was saved was driving me to despair. I had already been baptized twice at this point, but the issue of my salvation seemed no closer to being resolved. I spent many a Friday night chained to my desk scouring obscure commentaries to figure out what, verse, what various verses about repentance and faith really meant. I memorized large sections of the Bible. I did Greek word studies to determine subtle nuances in New Testament verses on the gospel. I prayed, I fasted, I made vows. I talked with pastors, professors, and friends. I interviewed Charles Ryrie. I went out in the woods and yelled at God. Why was he withholding assurance from me? Why was he hiding? Had he predestined me not to be saved and that was why I couldn't find assurance? Or, or was he waiting on me to make some promise to him about going to the mission field or living in poverty or something before he would finally let me have assurance? Was he punishing me for some kind of sin? One day I got so angry at God that I asked him why he didn't just make me a dog, since dogs at least don't have to worry about going to hell. Often through tears, I pleaded with God that if he let me have an assurance of salvation, I would be the best Christian that ever lived. But no matter what I did, what promises I made, or how many times I asked Jesus into my heart, I could not shake the feeling that I was headed for hell. That might seem strange, almost delusional to some people. But if you really believe in heaven and hell, how can you not be desperate to know which one you are headed to? Toward the end of the year, I began to conclude I could never really know. I wasn't sure what to do. I felt despair like a dark storm cloud coming over my heart. My monkish behavior, however, got me the reputation for being a serious student of the word. I was the guy too busy praying and studying the Bible to get out and have a good time. At the end of my freshman year, I was approached by the director of Word of Life Christian Camps, a large Christian student ministry in the Northeast, and was asked to serve as one of his head counselors for the summer. I wanted to serve, but I didn't see how someone who didn't know for sure if he was saved could be entrusted to look after the souls of others. Mike patiently listened to me pour out my struggle to him. I told him I didn't think I could therefore do the job. He quietly opened his Bible to John 3:36 and asked me to read it aloud to him. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. He said, how many categories of people do you see in that verse? Two, I answered. What are they? Those who believe and those who don't. Which are you, Thomas? Mike was showing me that there are only two postures we can take toward Jesus Christ. We either believe or we do not. Now, a more literal translation of John 3.36 
such as is rendered in the ESV, which is a translation that we like to use here, translates these two categories of that verse as he who believes and he who does not obey. Now, this interchange of uh, believe and obey is kind of helpful, actually, because it shows us that belief and obedience are, in a way, synonyms. We're commanded to believe that Jesus did what he said he did, and that was to pay the full penalty of our sin, and that settled it forever. And then we rearrange our life according to that belief. If we believe, we will obey. If we do not obey, we do not believe. If John 3.36 is true, you are either right now in believing submission to Jesus Christ or in unbelieving rebellion. For all of Thomas's time and energy, the answer he was looking for was astoundingly simple. We either believe in the Son or we don't. At the close of last week's message, I I talked a little bit about the end of John's first epistle, where he says that whether or not we have eternal life is conditioned on whether we believe the testimony God has given about the work of Jesus. And again, there are only two options. You believe it, or you declare God to be a liar. And so let's examine that a little bit more carefully. The testimony that uh, John refers to has several key components because he says this, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So the testimony is, sorry, I'll start that again. The testimony is that eternal life is not something that we have in ourselves. So God had to give it to us in Jesus. And so, see if my slides are right. Here we go. Believing the testimony thus first means admitting that there is no life in us. There is no potential for us to change on our own. John says if we have if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth which you could read as the testimony, is not in us. And then again in in, uh, 1 John 1.10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, (coughs) we make him a liar. And his word, again, his testimony, is not in us. And so the thought here is, is that if you think somehow that you have spiritual life in yourself, that you're worthy of God's acceptance just as you are, or that you can be good enough to earn God's approval if we just try a little harder. Or, you know, God God knows that we are really doing the best that we can and that he's willing to accept our good intentions. If that's the way we think, then we're rejecting God's testimony about the indispensability of Jesus and effectively calling God a liar. See, the testimony that he's talking about is that mankind, you and me, are hopelessly wicked, spiritually dead, and without hope 
apart from God's interventions. And so what you find, though, is that truly admitting that, truly admitting that you're unworthy and that you have this inability to rectify that is really difficult because if you're like most people, you've spent your whole life trying to convince others and yourself that you are anything but unworthy. See, a lot of people will admit that they'll make mistakes and they're not perfect, but fewer will go on from there and admit that their mistakes are what really make them unworthy of eternal life and worthy of eternal condemnation. We really want to believe that our mistakes aren't that bad, right? And you know how you can tell that? You can tell that by the language that people use when they talk about it. You can hear in, in how they downplay the badness of their sin. We use words for sin like mistakes, lapses in judgment, indiscretions. See, we acknowledge that we're not perfect, but we maintain that at our core, we're still a pretty good, decent person. And because of that, we deserve good things. We deserve a good salary. We deserve respect and recognition. And we will absolutely fight anybody that challenges that. And if that's the case, then God is a liar. Simple as that. Second, Believing the testimony means admitting that you are unworthy of any honor before God. Yes, your sin really is that bad. Now, I promise this is going to get more uplifting as we go, so <laughs> just bear with me. <laughs> God created you with the greatest position and privilege, and you spurned him. You thought you'd be a better God to yourself than he would. Ooh. You didn't start to sin because you hung around with the wrong crowd. You were the wrong crowd. <laughs> you hung around those you were comfortable with. You chose sin because you liked it better than you liked God. Amen? Amen. No one t had to teach you to sin. It just comes naturally. Just watch little kids. I mean... You know, they're fighting over toys, they're pushing each other down. They're, I mean, it's, it's right there. King David said the same thing in the Psalms. In Psalm 51, he says that I have been sinful from birth since my conception. And so what we deserve is the wrath of God because of all that. And there are no qualifications or exceptions to that at all. And so once again, believing the testimony starts with admitting there's no longer anything worthy of eternal life left in us. Now, as I said, thank God the testimony doesn't end there. But that's where it starts. First John 2, 1 and 2 says this. If we will acknowledge our sinfulness, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, 
and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God has testified not only to our sinfulness, but also to his graciousness. Okay, now it's going to start to get better. <clears throat> so, advocate is a legal term. Is now, was at, this, at the time that Paul was writing. Um, it refers to someone who's going to argue your case before the bar of justice. Who's going to come on your behalf and uh, argue that you are uh, better than what you know, the world somehow thinks you are. And that advocate that we've been given is Jesus. Now, what an advocate would normally do would go before the bar and say, well, this person is innocent, right? And then they would present facts, hopefully, as to why this person is innocent and does not deserve to be, f to be punished. Or maybe that there were some sort of extenuating circumstances that were involved in your arrest, and that's why you're here. Or that, you know, in general, this was just sort of a temporary lapse, that this person has a really good character and has lived a good life up till now, and so therefore, let, let's, let, let's let them off the hook. Just this one time. But the thing is, from what John says, that Jesus, who is our advocate, doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of that. He never argues for our goodness. He argues his righteousness in our place. And this other word, kind of a big churchy word, propitiation. What it means is that the claim has been satisfied, and it literally means wrath has been absorbed. And just to bring it into some real-life terms, uh, let's say you caused a traffic accident, and it caused, uh, it was your fault, and it did several thousand dollars worth of damage to the other person's car. All right? And so, stands to reason, that account is not settled until you pay the damages. And at that point, that other person has been propitiated. Okay, when the claim has been paid in full, they don't have any kind of a hold on you in any way. Well, Jesus did this with the holy wrath of God against our sin by suffering the full penalty for this in our place. He doesn't argue our worthiness. He argues his substitution. We're not worthy to be forgiven, but he is worthy to forgive us. 1 John 1.9 says that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Now, what's interesting is notice that John doesn't say that God is merciful and kind to forgive our sins. That's because the basis of this forgiveness is not mercy, it's justice. See, we're back into the legal. This is a legal transaction. Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin, and there's not an ounce of judgment left. Nothing. It would be unjust for God to hold the sins of Christians against them any longer, for that would be like requiring two penalties for the same sin. So, for example, if you have a, a spouse or a roommate and you get a bill at your house for the electricity, 
okay? And one of you pays it, pays it in full. And then somehow or another, through a mix-up or whatever, the electric company sends you a second bill for the same month to be paid again. Well, you wouldn't pay it, would you? I hope not. You would rightly you know, protest and say, look, we've paid this already. And so it's really no different with God. For God to extract one drop of punishment from a believer for his sin would be requiring two penalties for the same sin. And so Jesus suffered the full extent of God's judgment. And all that's left for us to do is just to accept it. Now, for some people, there's this thought of Jesus standing before God begging for mercy. This is maybe how you, know, you would picture it, whether it's mercy or leniency or whatever. And so Thomas, we're talking about, this is how he imagined it. So these are his words again. I can imagine Jesus going into the heavenly courtroom with a stack of case folders with one marked Thomas Hamartia, which he pulled out and he said, okay, Father, it's Hamartia again. Can you please give him one more chance? He's a good guy, really. You know, please, pretty please. Come on, Dad, you owe me a little bit. I went to earth and everything for you and did all that. Well, deep down, wouldn't you start to wonder at what point you're going to reach the end of God's patience? You know, you'd sin for the 491st time, and the Father would finally say, all right, that's it. No more leniency. Jesus, I'm sorry, even with you in his corner, he's going to have to pay for that one. Doesn't work that way, does it? It's because Jesus does not appeal to God the Father for mercy on your behalf. He appeals for justice. He has satisfied all the claims against you. And now he says to the Father, Father, I paid the full price for this sin. I took the penalty due to him so that he could have the credit due to me. It is only right that he not be held accountable for this sin. And so, if you are in Christ, this is the confidence that we have. We don't have to hope that we're forgiven. We know it. Because our standing before God has nothing to do with our worthiness. But the worthiness of the advocate who now stands in our place. Now see, this is an area that um, so many people get wrong. You know, and there's a, there's a bunch of different wrong approaches that folks take to this. First one is this argument that they're good enough to earn God's approval. You know, this is the, well, my sins aren't as bad as his sins or her sins or their sins. So 
comparatively speaking, they think, okay, well, you know, I'm better than them, so I'm probably good enough. And so that, that may work fine as long as God graves on the curve. But it's in direct defiance of the testimony that God's given about Jesus. It doesn't work that way. And see, the thing is, if we could have been good enough, would Jesus really have had to die? What kind of God would have done that to someone if there was some other way? Others try to buy forgiveness on credit. They tell God that if he'll forgive them for their latest offense, they'll make it up to him by some good work in the future. Right? God, I promise if you'll get me out of this, I'll fast and pray every day and whatever, whatever. Or I'll be a missionary. You know, I'll go to the ends of the earth, wherever. Just get me out of this. And then there is this idea, which is primarily comes to us from the Catholic Church, where people believe that when they die, they can go to purgatory. And that's a place where they can pay off the remaining balance of their sins. But it's also a rejection of the testimony. They're saying that basically Christ's work is not completed like he said it was. And so, do we really think that we complete his suffering by doing a little bit of it ourselves? There's one hope and only one hope. The finished work of Jesus. We don't need to add to it, and we can't, even if we tried. And so the third aspect of believing the testimony means embracing what God has said about the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We were so bad that he had to die for us. He was so gracious that he was glad to do it. And so when we repentantly believe that, we receive eternal life. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Zechariah. And he wrote about 500 years before Jesus was actually born. And in his writings, he gives us this amazing picture of Jesus' propitiatory work and what that did. Now, what Zechariah saw was a vision about a high priest named Joshua who was about to enter the presence of God. Now, let's, let's do a little background on this first because it will make more sense. Um, high priests offered a yearly sacrifice on a day called Yom Kippur, which was, is called the Day of Atonement. That's what it means. And like this year, for example, it occurs October the 11th and 12th. So it's always in the fall, uh, just depending on the calendar. And so what would happen then is that the priest would enter the, the Holy of Holies, this one place within the temple where no one else would ever go except the priests. And uh, they, because the Jewish people believe that is where the actual presence of God dwelt. And so God's glory was resting upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant there. Uh, if you remember, there are images, or there are two cherubim that were fashioned that 
are, uh, are right there as well. And so once a year, the priest would enter this space. And so he would go in, the high priest would go in, sprinkle the blood of a clean animal sacrifice upon the top of the ark, and this would thereby propitiate or, or pay off the anger of God against the sins of the people of Israel. And so there was a, a meticulous amount of preparation that went in to uh, the high priest before he actually went in there. Um, if there was any defilement that was found on him at all, Leviticus says that he would be struck down in the presence of God. And so um, there was an Old Testament scholar named Ray Dillard, and he described what the process looked like as the high priest was preparing. So listen. He says, A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone, a place where no one could touch him. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or be touched or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe, dressed in pure, white, unstained linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his sins. After that, he came out, bathed completely again. New white linen was brought. He put that on. And he went in again, this time sacrificing for all the sins of the priests. But that's not all. He came out a third time. Went through the whole process again. Bathed from head to toe, dressed in pure white linen. And then went into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of all the people. And this was all done in public. Um the people would crowd into the temple to watch this. Um, now, there was a thin screen, so he, you know, he wasn't taking a bath in public, but they could see this whole process taking place, of him coming out, getting cleaned up, and then going back in. Because they knew he was their representative before God. And they were very concerned to make sure that everything went well and was done properly, because if not, then there would be no atonement for their sin. Okay, so that's the process. So let's now go back to the vision that Zechariah had. And, and to his great horror, what Zechariah saw was Joshua, this high priest, about to enter the Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies, but he was covered in filth that was the equivalent of human excrement and vomit. Now, this was an absolute disaster, not only for Joshua, but for the entire people of Israel. This one moment of representation by the high priest was their only hope for forgiveness. And just as, as Zechariah is just about to you know, despair, he hears the Lord say this, Take away the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. God had given Zechariah a vision of how all of us, even the most religious among us, look to God as we approach him. And a promise to remove that defilement from us forever in a single day. Pastor and author Tim Keller put it this way. Centuries later, another Joshua showed up. Another Yeshua. You see, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, it's all the same name in Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew. And he staged his own day of atonement. One week beforehand, Jesus began to prepare. And the night before, he didn't go to sleep. But what happened to Jesus was exactly the reverse of what happened to Joshua the high priest. Because instead of cheering him on, and nearly everyone he loved betrayed, abandoned, or denied him. And when he stood before God, instead of receiving words of encouragement, the Father forsook him. Instead of being clothed in rich garments, he was stripped of the only garment he had. He was beaten and killed naked. He was bathed in human spit. See, before God, we are like the filth-covered Yeshua that Zechariah saw. But because there was a new Yeshua who was perfect and who was clothed with our filth and suffered its consequences, we can put on the garments of righteousness. Because Jesus, who deserved condemnation or commendation, received condemnation instead, we, who deserve condemnation, instead receive his commendation. Now there's a really easy way to remember all of this because it can be a little complicated and such. But if you can just say, Jesus in my place. Jesus took our sin, suffering the full weight of its penalty, and in return he offers us his righteousness. And so when we're united to Christ, what's ours become his, and what's his becomes ours. One of the best earthly pictures of this relationship to Christ is marriage. Because in marriage, all that belongs to one partner becomes the full procession of the other when, uh, when, they, when they marry. David Platt tells a story about his pleasant realization when he got married, he was a poor college student, and his wife had a job. Now, all of a sudden, he had some money. So it was a really good thing. And it works the same way with Christ. All that's yours become his. All that's his become yours. And so our hope of heaven is based upon Jesus' finished work, plus nothing. So here's the equation, if you're a mathematician. Jesus plus nothing equals assurance. There's nothing else that needs to be or could be added to what he did. It's an old hymn. It says it very much better than I could. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Now, just in case that you're struggling with this concept of nothing, I think this will clear it up for you. Floyd doesn't believe he can get his taxes done for nothing. So we brought in Dr. Michio Kaku to explain exactly what we mean by nothing. Nothing is the absence of something. Zero is absolutely nothing. So it costs nothing? Well, it costs you zero, which is nothing. Nothing. All right. Got it? Nothing. See, you could not be more righteous in God's eyes than you are in Christ. In Christ, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing that you have done that makes him love you less. And perhaps the most clearest, most concise explanation of this is given in Paul's gospel, Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's three important things that happens in that verse. <clears throat> to the one who does not work, the first part, that is, to the one who realizes that there's nothing that they can do to ever earn eternal life. The second part, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That is, believes that God did the work necessary to save him just like God said he did. And then finally, his faith is counted as righteousness. God counts that belief, that faith, as righteousness to us. And so it's a free gift. All we have to do is accept it. And so understanding this gift of righteousness of the gospel is, is a key component in gaining this assurance. If you try to base it on what you do or how well you do it, you're never going to find assurance. You're always going to be wondering if you're doing enough. <coughs> if your assurance is based on what Christ has done, however, then all you can do is rest in his perfect performance. Your salvation is as secure as his finished work. The New Testament writers all boldly declare that salvation is obtained by believing it is done. But what exactly, you may wonder, does it mean to believe? That, my friends, is the subject for next week. <laughs> so let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the testimony that assures us that we don't have to worry one second about whether or not we are saved. That your word so clearly lays out for us the argument that it has all been done for us. And so we just take this time now to offer you thanks. 
to offer you praise for the saving work of that Jesus did on the cross. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, Father, we thank you once again for this day, for your word, for all that you are and all that you do, especially what you have done for each one of us. Bless this group of people now as they leave this place, as they go out into uh, the world, to back to school, back to jobs, back to whatever this week brings. Father, we just pray that you would go with them, that you would guide and direct their steps, that they would hear clearly and discern exactly what you are asking them to do in each area of their life. Bless and protect each one, Lord. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.